Crossing over tonight to our final section of Judges, Judges 17. It's the third and final section of the book. First section was in chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 6, we talked about. And uh, that dealt with Israel's failure to possess the land of Canaan. They uh, were unable to defeat the Canaanites living there. It says they attacked different Canaanites and they were unable to uh, dispossess them from their land. And they just couldn't drive them out. Under Joshua, prior to that, they'd had, in large measure, a great success. But after that, after his death, they were marked by failure. Why was that? Because they they failed to obey God's word. God said, don't make a covenant with the Canaanites. They're going to draw you into idolatry, and that's exactly what happened. So the Lord said, well... If that's the way it is, I'm not going to drive out anybody before you from now on. And he didn't. And so they failed largely in that, in that time. The second major section after that is called, the, we've called the cycles section because Israel goes through this cycle constantly. That's chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 16, which we finished last week. The cycle is this. Israel sins. They do evil in the sight of the Lord. Then uh, the Lord, uh, then they cry out to the Lord or rather, the Lord sends an enemy nation to judge them. They cry out to the Lord, and then he raises up a judge and delivers them. Then they have a rest for so, so much, uh, so, a certain period of time. And they go through this cycle again and again and again, all through those chapters, all the way through chapter 16. So we've gone through that now. That brings us to the third and final section of Judges, a section that no one, and I'm not trying to lift myself up, we're only going through the book of Judges. I've got to go to the next chapter, right? Nobody ever preaches on Judges. How many here have ever heard a sermon on Judges 17 to 21? Let's see. Keep your hands up. <laughs> Nobody. Neither have I. And I'm, like I say, I'm only doing it because I have to. <laughs> I gotta get, that's the thing about this kind of this verse-by-verse business. You've got to go to the next chapter, right, next section. But it's, when, you look, when you look at it carefully, though, there's, it's very interesting. It's a section dealing with the depravity of Israel during the time of the judges. And there's, there's no more judges listed here, like Samson and Gideon and all. That's over with. Now it's talking about what that time period was like uh, outside of the judges. Um, it was, uh, there's certain events, selected events, that take place in these chapters that show us what, how things were, what it was like to live in those days. They were not the good old days for Israel, by the way. It was a bad time. It was a dark time. One of the lowest times in their history. Now, Israel had many low times in their history as you read the Old Testament. You can see it again and again. But this was a major low point in their history. The last five chapters, as you read through them, naturally fall into two divisions. You can see it very clearly. Chapters 17 and 18 is the first division. Chapters 19 through 21 is the, last, is the second division. In chapters 17 and 18, you're confronted with religious chaos. It's totally crazy in a religious sense. And then in the last couple chapters, 19 through 21, you're confronted with social anarchy. And, and things just kind of go berserk for Israel in a social sense. You have religious chaos in 17 and 18, social anarchy in 19 and 21. There is a statement repeated four different times in these last chapters that is the theme of this section. Let's look at those uh, references. Look at chapter 17, verse 6. <clears throat> you don't see this until you get to this, uh, this chapter. 17.6 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 18, verse 1. You have only the first half of that statement. In those days there was no king of Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1. 
Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. And then the last verse of the entire book, last verse of chapter 21. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Right in their own eyes. And when Israel did what was right in their own eyes in that time, they became an apostate nation. That's what happened. They did what was right in their own eyes, and they became an apostate nation. They, apostasy is departing from God. It's willingly falling away from God, rebelling against the Lord. And they did that. They rebelled against the truth. And as a result of this, the nation fell into a state of spiritual decay in this whole time period of the judges. By and large, they were in a state of spiritual decay. To be more precise, there were three institutions in Israel that were in a state of spiritual decay. First of all, the family. Second of all, the priesthood. And thirdly, the tribes of Israel. Tonight, we'll only consider the first of these, and that is the family was in a state of spiritual decay. It's found in the first six verses of chapter 17. Let's read that, that, those verses. It says there, Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord, for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when the, he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith, who made them into a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become priest, his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now the family is, has always been, it was then and it still is now, the basic unit of any society. Although the family unit right now in America is not looking too good. There's serious issues at work that are continuing to threaten to rip the family apart completely and, and, and are in the process of right now of that doing that. But the basic unit of society has always been the family. In the book of Judges so far, we've encountered normally the nation as a whole or a portion of the nation as we've looked through these chapters. It says things like Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord and they're, they're punished by an enemy nation. So a nation or a portion of the nation um, or a local part of the nation receives the focus. But now the focus changes. In chapter 17, there's no more mention of the nation Israel doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Back before the last judge came on the scene, Samson, chapter 13, verse 1, prior to his coming on the scene, it says this, Now the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So you can see the contrast between that, the cycle section of the judges, and, and this section now. Look at 17.1. Now there was a man. It's not, it's not Israel. It's not a nation anymore. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. So you go from a nation to an individual, and that individual is the head of a household. So we're going to get a glimpse in these chapters of what it was in this section for, for what it was for an Israelite household in those days. We're going to see what it was like. And I believe the scene here is more typical in Israel than it was the exception to the rule. And, and so they have this, this time period of, of, going, of turning to idolatry and becoming an apostate nation. Now, a nation is made up of individuals. You say a nation became apostate. Well, a nation is made up of individuals. It's made up of families as well. So this was happening, this apostasy was happening at the basic level of society. Verse 6 says that every man, 
did what was right in his own eyes. And so you see this household here as we'll look into it further. Now the name of the man in, in verse seven, chapter 17, one, verse 1 is Micah. And what does Micah mean? Anybody remember from our study in Micah? That study that you memorized, no doubt, and sent the notes out to worldwide probably. His name means who is like the Lord, right? Micah means who is like the Lord. So right away you see that the, the parents, at least it appears that the parents had this priority in mind. They wanted to name their son um, a name that would honor the Lord. They gave him that name at birth. A lot of us have named our children after people in the Bible, right? Because we saw the significance of the biblical names. And we wanted to, them to have that idea that, hey, we want our children to honor the Lord. And that's what is happening here, it looks like, so far. Well, Micah is from Ephraim, which is just immediately north of Jerusalem. It's in the center, the heartland of Israel. It's not on the fringe somewhere. So what was happening here was probably happening everywhere else. So what was happening in the family in this time? Well, we're going to find out these people are very religious. Families were very religious in Israel. They definitely practiced their religion, no doubt about it at all. But the problem is their religion allowed them to break the commandments of God, and that's what we see in this chapter here. First of all, in his family here, the fifth and eighth commandments are broken in, verses, in the first two verses. The fifth and eighth commandments are broken in the first two verses. You see this character, Micah, and he's got a confession to make. He says to his mother, goes to his mother, and he says, you know, you had 1,100 pieces of silver, well, and, and, you, and they're missing. I, I took them. He makes this confession. I stole the money from you. He admits to stealing 1,100 pieces of silver from her. Now, we've seen that that phrase before, 1,100 pieces of silver. We saw it in the last chapter where the, uh, Philist, the five lords of the Philistines, in all likelihood five lords, bribed uh, Delilah with 1,100 pieces of silver each out of their pockets, totaling 5,500 pieces of silver. That, that made her a very wealthy woman, that bribe. That's why, that's why she was motivated to go after Samson, by the way. She did. And 1,100 pieces of silver alone was, was a lot of money, although nobody knows quite how much, but everybody's in agreement it's a lot of money. So here's a lot of money available. Micah knows it's available. His mother's probably a wealthy woman, and he, and he knows where this money is. It doesn't tell us where, and he decides to steal it. You know, he was a thief, Micah was, and of the worst kind. Have you ever heard anybody say, you know, that guy would even steal from his own mother? Well, that's what Micah did. He stole from his own mother. That's the kind of guy we're looking at right here. Two commandments were broken by Micah. First of all, he broke the fifth commandment, the fifth commandment, which is in Exodus 20, verse 12. That says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord God gives you. Well, they're in the land now. They were told to, uh, when they got to the land, to honor the, their parents, right? They're in, their land, in the land now, and guess what's happening? They're not honoring their parents. This guy stole from his own mother. Now, it's not some petty theft, as I say. He stole a large amount of money. So, so much for his mother and his father naming him Micah, who is like the Lord. They could have named him like who is like a thief, maybe. To be more accurate. His name betrays who he really is. And I can imagine that Based on this story, and because every man did that which was right in his own eyes, a lot of this was going on. A lot of this dishonoring of parents was going on in this time. I don't think it was unusual. Not to mention there was a lot of Ten Commandment breaking going on in this period of time in general. But, you know, dishonoring your parents is something that the Lord hates. He hates it as much as he hates 
most anything else. And if you're a child living in your parents' home and they tell you to do something, you need to do it. If they tell you to pick up your toys, you need to pick them up. If they tell you to clean your room, they, you need to clean your room. I mean, this is a serious business of obeying your parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It's a very serious thing. And if you're a son or daughter who's older and you're living at home, or maybe you're not living at home, you're single, you're married, but you're away from your home, but you have parents who are elderly, guess what? You have a responsibility to honor them anyway, to honor your parents. If, they're, if they need help, you need to help them. If they are lonely and they never get a visit from you, maybe you could, could t- pay them a visit periodically. Chuck and I were talking just the other day about uh, homes where uh, senior citizens live, and I remember some in Chicago I used to visit, and I, I'd talk to people, and, and, and they'd say, well, my son or daughter never comes to see me at all. I'm, I'm like, serious? They never come to see you? Nobody comes to see them ever. And the same is true here, I think. And, and I tell you what, if you have a parent, you need to, to show them honor by, doing, by helping them in whatever way is possible. It's a dishonor to your parents not to do that. You're sinning against your parents, by the way, if you're not honoring them in that way. So make that commitment to do that. And Micah failed in this area. He did not honor his parents clearly by stealing from his mother. So he broke this fifth commandment. He also broke the eighth commandment, uh, which is you shall not steal, Exodus 20:15. Now we're living in a time in America where thievery is the order of the day. Everybody's a thief, and if you don't have it battened down, you're going to get it stolen. And that's just how it is. I was, I, we went Christmas caroling last, the end of last year in December. And there was a bunch of cars parked in our yard. And we went around the block, all of us as a church. We looked real cute out there as a church going around the block singing to people. We got back, and later on, everybody was leaving. And Daniel and I went to the, out there in the driveway. And Daniel noticed that my door to my car was open about that much. Hey, your door's open. I said, I don't leave my door open. So we looked inside. It didn't seem to be anything gone. But the next morning, I checked again, and there was something gone. I didn't have anything valuable in there at all. You know what? The guy stole my sunglasses and my duct tape I had in there. You should always have, have duct tape on hand wherever you go, by the way. But <laughs> I thought, how pathetic. This, this guy stole my sunglasses that my oldest son bought me, by the way, which was kind of a, something that was sentimental, you know. <laughs> that kind of aggravated me. And then he t- stole my duct tape to add insult to injury. But people will steal anything. Ephesians 4.28, he who steals must steal no longer. Rather, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have to him to give who is in need. It's a great verse for thieves, right? Micah did confess his sin, and he gave it back to his mother. However, according to Leviticus 6, there were several other things he should have done, but he did not do. Look at Leviticus chapter 6 in this this theft. Leviticus 6, verse 1. It says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his, his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him or through robbery, you've deceived someone, especially someone you know closely, through robbery, or if he is extorted from his companion, look at verse 4, then it shall be when he sins and becomes guilty, he shall restore what he took by robbery. Now, Micah did that, didn't he? Restored what he took. Or what he got by extortion, or the deposit which was entrusted to him, or the lost thing which he found, or anything about which he swore swore falsely, he shall make restitution for it in full and add to it one-fifth more. 
He shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. Then he shall bring the the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, uh, a ram without defect from the flock according to your valuation for a guilt offering. The priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the uh, things which he may have done to incur guilt. So there was other things that Micah should have done. He should have added one-fifth to the amount. That was according to the, the law, the word of God, right? That's what he was supposed to do. He should have brought a guilt offering to the priest. Uh, and he didn't, he didn't bother to go to the priest to make atonement at all. In other words, he did not obey the word of God. Micah didn't obey the word of God in his time period. He knew it. That was, the law was there. The word of God was there. He didn't obey it. You know, the Lord expects us to do things a certain way, and that way is found in his word, isn't it? That's, how we, that's our objective standard that we go by. We don't go by through life just doing as we please and doing things the way we please. We do it the way God wants us to do it. He should have followed the teaching of the Word of God, but Micah has no regard for the Word of God. He's a thief, number one. Didn't care about his mother either, number two. And if we have no regard for the Word of God, we will not take proper action in regard to the sins and the things that we commit against God. When we sin, we've got to realize it's it's against God. It's not something to be taken lightheartedly or flippantly. Confession is necessary. Repentance is necessary. And the scripture teaches all these things. But Micah did not do it God's way, did he? He did it his own way because everybody was doing that which was right in their own eyes in that time. Now you might think, well, that's being a little bit harsh on Micah, isn't it? After all, he returned the money, so what's the big deal? Well, why did he return the money? That's another question I have. What was his motivation for returning the money? Why did he do this? It says in verse 2, he, sells, he tells his mother, you know that 1,100 pieces of silver which have been missing for a while? He says, you remember that, 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 that money that you uttered a curse about in my hearing? I'm going to return it to you. Now, that curse that she uttered in his hearing would involve some horrible fate for the person who had stolen the money. And that person would be, in, in, in that time period, people were afraid of such a curse. So she utters this curse in his presence. By the way, that she uttered the curse in his presence makes me wonder if she suspected him of the theft. I'm not so sure she didn't suspect him of that. And so he felt, he, he, was, he was afraid. The reason he gave the money back was because he thought something horrible would go wrong. And he was afraid of that curse. And that's why he gave it back. He only did it because he, was, he felt like he was under this curse. That was his motive. The motive was all wrong. And it makes me wonder, what is our motives for a confession of sin? Are we afraid that we're going to be judged or disciplined? Now, I will say, to be dis- this thought that we have of being disciplined by the Lord is a good motivation. Let me say that, first of all. I think it's a good motivation. That we would think that God will judge us for our sin is a good motivation, I think. In other words, why not deal with the sin before it happens, right? Mike read the passage on the Lord's Supper the other night or talked about uh, things re- regarding this. 1 Corinthians 11:28 says this, A man must examine himself before he takes the Lord's Supper. And in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and in number sleep, they're dead. The next verse, but if we judged ourselves rightly. Who's judging who? We, we are judging ourselves. If we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. I think that's a good motivation. That we judge ourselves so God won't judge us. That's a good and proper reason. It helps us to see that sinning against God is serious business, right? 
But what is our motive? What is your motivation outside of that for, for, for sin or misbehavior? Is it because you've been caught in the act and now you've got to confess that sin because you're obligated to? You have no choice in the matter. Is that the reason? Isn't it better to have a tender heart towards God to respond to the Holy Spirit when you're convicted and say, I, I, I've done wrong against God and therefore I'm going to respond in that, for that reason? But Micah did not have the proper motivation. He was just afraid of his mother's curse. And so he confesses that he stole this money. And I don't think he would have confessed that. I don't think he would have returned those stolen merchandise had he not thought about that curse and it bothered him. But he returned it at any rate. And so he's guilty of breaking the fifth commandment. He dishonored his mother. He's guilty of breaking the eighth commandment. He stole that which was not his. In all likelihood, he broke the tenth commandment for that matter because he probably coveted after the money in some way, although it doesn't say that. So he's obligated to confess his theft. And surprisingly, his mother accepts it and even approves. And she says, blessed be my son by the Lord, which in, in their minds means she's reversing that curse she uttered, and now she's offering a blessing instead. But this family is not through violating the Ten Commandments. In verses 3 to 5, the first and second commandments are broken. Now, when you read verse, verse 2... And she says this, blessed be my son by the Lord. I get the idea that Micah's mother is truly devoted to the Lord. Doesn't it seem that way? This is a godly, you're, you're thinking at this point, this is a godly lady. She named her son Micah, who is like the Lord. She is now saying things like, blessed be my son by the Lord. You know, you, you hear people talk like that and you think to yourself, man, it's a spiritual person right there. You ever thought that? Hear someone talking like this and you think, it's such a spiritual person right there that they would talk like that. Um, but then look at the next verse. It says, she wholly dedicated the silver from her hand to the Lord. So far, so good, right? For my son to make a graven image and a molten image. She dedicated her money to the Lord so her son could make idols. Now, does that make any sense to anybody? This is the time period of the judges' religious chaos. goes to show you that just because a person sounds spiritual, and I've talked to these people, and they have Christian vocabulary doesn't mean that everything is, is as it appears to be on the surface. It could mean just the opposite, as a matter of fact. I've heard people talk about the Lord. I've heard people, I heard, uh, I've heard people talk about church. And then they go on to espouse some kind of heresy or something totally foreign to Scripture. I've heard people talk about the Lord and then, at the same time, and then turn around and say something just the opposite. Does it mean that a person, because their words sound good, that they're, that they're necessarily so? That's necessarily the case. And that's what Jesus warned about in Matthew 7, 21. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or uses the word Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We said your name, Lord, right? And in your name we cast out demons. In your, in your name, we even perform many miracles. And then I will declare unto them, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And if anyone was practicing lawlessness under the guise of religion, it was the people in the time of the judges. So, and, the, and the mother of Micah is one of them. So she pronounces the blessing of God on her son, but then she turns around and encourages him to be an idolater. Isn't that bizarre? And that's how the time period was. So think of the reasoning here. She dedicates 
this money that was stolen returned back to her to the Lord in order to make idols. She wants her son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, isn't that a violation of something? It's a violation of the second commandment, right? Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of that which is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the water or in the water under the earth. And since the purpose of this making of this idol making is to uh, worship false gods, he also broke, they also broke the first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3, which says, You shall have no other gods before me. But that didn't detour Micah's mother. She wasn't concerned about the Ten Commandments at all. She was concerned about religion, her religion that she'd come to know. And so she gives money to the silversmith who makes to the silversmith who makes the idols that are stationed in Micah's house. <laughs> but just to go, go further with this warp mentality that's taking place in chapter 17, and it gets more bizarre as you go through these chapters, you see that she has de- dedicated 1,100 pieces of silver to the Lord, right? But how much money did she give to the silversmith? 200 pieces of silver, it says. It kind of reminds, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, why is she doing this? Was it like, is it because of like, like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, she's dedicating so much to the Lord, but she holds part of it back because she's lying and she wants it for herself or what? I don't know what her motive is. Just another strange twist of this whole convoluted story in, Acts, in, in Judges 17. And by the way, I don't think keeping your word was a priority at the time either. It's all getting, it gets crazier and crazier. So the mother is not the, the only one given to idolatry in the story either. Micah is a full-blown idolater himself, we come to find out. The man whose name means who is like the Lord. It says here uh, that he had a shrine. Uh, verse, uh, verse 5, My, the man Micah had a shrine. That's a house of gods. And then it says he had a, an ephod and a household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. He's got all this strange mixture of things. He's got money dedicated to the Lord to make idols. And yet he has all these, he's got an ephod, which is only for the priest to wear, a true priest to wear. He's not a true priest or anything like Gideon made an ephod in Judges chapter 8, I think, which was wrong also. And so you have all this taking place here, all this crazy religious stuff going on. You remember Pastor Jean from Haiti when he was here? And he talked about how, and by the way, this takes place all over the world. I've heard about it taking place in Mexico and other places. He talked about down in Haiti, people will say they're Christians, but at the same time they'll practice voodoo. Or maybe in Mexico they'll say they're Christians, but at the same time they'll include Catholicism into their uh, religious mix because that's what their background is. That is called syncretism. The word is syncretism. When you mix religious systems together, religious ideas together, religious ideologies together, you have a syncretistic religion. It's like, like a melting pot religion. A little of this and a little of that, throw it all together and mix it up, and you got now you have your own religion. And that's exactly what was going on in the time of the judges. They were speaking hypocritically of the Lord, talking about the Lord. Blessed be my son, son of the Lord, and I'm going to dedicate my money to the Lord, but... I'm going to do it for the purpose of making an idol. That's all crazy. It's all conflicting. I heard years ago, I heard I was listening to MacArthur preach on the radio. He talked about a, a, uh, being on a plane and talking to a Hindu, witnessing to a Hindu, who apparently made a profession of faith in Christ. And, uh, and so uh, MacArthur was thinking, man, this guy got saved. This is great. And uh, later on in their conversation, 
the guy, the Hindu, tells MacArthur, well, now I have Jesus I can add to my Hinduism as well. And that's what many people in the world think, that it's Jesus plus <clears throat> my old religion or Jesus plus something else, and I'll mix it all together and I'll have this, what I want to, to worship. This is how I want it to be. This is my religion. Or people will start their own religion and come up with their own ideas. So you have this idea of syncretism, a melting pot of religions. But the Bible makes it plain there's only one way, and that way is Christ. He's exclusive. There is no other way. It's not him plus something else. There's only one Bible, and it's what, and it's what it says is important. It's not that and something else. Joshua said, if the Lord be God, then serve him. <clears throat> but if Baal, then serve him. What, what's it going to be? Either it's, not, it's one or the other. You can't... You have to make the decision on which you're going to follow, the Lord or a false God, not both. But in, in, in this time, and I think it's not only true of Micah's household, but I think there were many households, I know there were, I'm sure there were, because of the whole nation being in idolatry, who had household gods in this time, who had maybe shrines who were worshiping false idols, and yet they were talking about the Lord too. You know, I know the Lord because they remember that old religion they had of uh, uh, I'm not talking about the old-time religion. It is the old-time religion, but in their eye, now they've got another religion mixing up with it. They've got the Lord. They remember him because they, they, they used to talk about, people used to talk about the Lord and how he took people through the Red Sea and, and how he brought them out of Egypt and so on. They remember all that. But they've got this new Canaanite religion, too, in the land they're living in because all their Canaanite neighbors have false gods, and they want to get in on that, too. So they mix it all up. And now they have this syncretistic religion. And so the family now, in this time, is in spiritual decay. But guess what? The family nowadays in America is still in spiritual decay. Not much has changed. We've got so many things going on in this country, <clears throat> so many false doctrines taught. People are in churches listening to this, what, what appears to be a Bible in front of the man preaching, and yet he's preaching the prosperity gospel. Or he's preaching something else, some heresy, or he's preaching... Uh, he's preaching the openness of God theology, which says that God doesn't know everything. There are numbers. There's always some new fad. There's always a new religious fad, a new theological fad coming down the pike. <clears throat> Just get ready. There's going to be a new one coming your way soon. I'm sure of it. Uh, every time you, you think you got one down, the, the shack, and it goes on and on. Then you and what's the other guy? Uh, the guy that wrote the book about uh, what's that? Name any book. There's a bunch of them out there. Rob Bell. I wasn't thinking about that, but I knew he'd come up with something out there. So <laughs> Rob Bell and the other guy, whoever that guy was, it doesn't matter. There's another book coming out all the time and another theology coming out all the time and another radio, a guy on the radio coming out all the time and saying, look, this is how it is. And yet he's using the Bible at the same time. And that's how it is. You got this syncretistic idea going on. You know, America was founded on, <clears throat> I believe, largely on Christian principles, on biblical principles. Now, someone argue that. I'm not saying that we were ever a, a Christian nation per se. However, at least we had the principles, at least in, in, in uh, people said we did. Um, the Constitution, and those principles are under attack by now, by the way. The Constitution speaks of a creator. Well, nobody wants to hear about the creator anymore. Their creation is under attack. And... You know, it's okay to say the word Allah, but you can't say the word God because that would offend people. And so you always have, you have this crazy thought, things going on in America. And the family's under attack in many ways. Gay marriage, which was one time would have, be thought, would, would, would have been thought abhorrent, is now being considered by our, 
The highest court in the land, Supreme Court. I can't even begin to believe this is happening, but it is happening. So the family's under attack from many directions. And, and so this nation, too, just like in the time of the judges, is, is, under, is in a state of spiritual, spiritual decay. And the only hope is Christ and the gospel. It's always been the hope. It still is. Well, what's the reason for all this craziness going on in religion? Verse 6 is the reason for their meltdown. In those, kings, there was no king, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And I think that sums it up completely. And it's mentioned four times in the next five chapters. <clears throat> now, I don't know if you were here during the introduction to the book of Judges when we did that, but I didn't even hardly mention this phrase. I know, this is the phrase in Judges everybody talks about, right? And the reason was I wanted to think about it a lot longer, this whole phrase about uh, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And now we're here in this chapter, finally, and guess what? I still want to think about it a lot more <laughs> uh, because I'm intrigued by this statement. Um, the, it's quoted four times. The first and last times give a full statement, and you have to read it in its full context, really. And then the, first, the middle two only give the first part of the quote. It does not say, the four quotes do not say, in those days every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, every man did that which is right in his own eyes. So you have the whole quote to look at. And I wish I had a, an answer for you that was solid and definite, but I have a lot of observations instead. <laughs> let me, first of all, let me ask you this. Is this a spiritual king we're talking about or a physical king? Some people think it's a spiritual king. In those days, there was no king in Israel, no spiritual king to lead them. In other words, the Lord was not the king. He was not leading them, is what they say. And I don't think that's the case, because the Lord has always been the king. Now, he was a rejected king during this time, but the Lord is the one who reigns and rules over the universe, right? So we could say he's the king of the universe. He's reigning over the world. I think he was rejected by Israel in this time, definitely. Judges 8, remember that? When we talked about Gideon, Gideon says, they asked Gideon to rule over them. And he says, I will not rule over you, and my sons will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you, is what he says. Well, they didn't want the Lord to rule over them. And, uh, but that's what he told them. But Israel rejected that rule. And, and by the way, just the other day, Mike was talking about where, where it says on the, on the cross, this is the king of the Jews. Jesus, the king of the Jews, was rejected at the cross. And he was, that doesn't mean he was any less a king. He truly was the king of the Jews, the king of the whole world, but he was rejected. But I think that what's in view here is not an, a, a, a spiritual king, but an earthly king. And that would come later on in Israel's history. So when you see these verses like this, in those days there was no king in Israel, <clears throat> it's because this book, Judges, was written during the time when the kings ruled. And he's pointing back saying, oh, remember back in those days of Judges, there was no king that ruled in Israel. It was written later on. But I think it's referring to, to human kings. In general, I think it's saying this. Kings established law and order in the land. They, as a rule, enforced the laws of the land. They led in civil matters. They were supposed to lead in spiritual matters. They gave structure to society and order to society. And I think that's probably what he's saying here. But now, unlike the judges, which there was not structure to society then. But now that's the ideal situation. Understand this. <laughs> That's the ideal situation. But kings were anything, were often anything but ideal, weren't they? Read the history of the kings and, and come back and talk to me and 
and say, wait a minute, they weren't all that great either. <laughs> what was it the Lord had wanted from kings? <clears throat> well, if you go to Deuteronomy 17, he talks about kings long before there was a king. By the way, he's not endorsing kings in Deuteronomy 17. He's saying there, when you come to me and you say, I want a king, okay, fine, but here's what I want out of a king. And he goes on to talk about what he wants out of a king. One of the things he says there is, <clears throat> kings are to be men who obey the word of God. There, in fact, the king was to copy the word of God down and then to, to read it every single day so that he would be a humble king and he would do what God wanted him to do. He was to be, obey the word of God. And then he would lead from there, from that perspective. But, of course, we know that kings were often far from what God's ideal was for them. And the problem with kings was many of them <clears throat> did what was right in their own eyes, just like the people and judges did. And I'm not so sure... They were much better. You look at Solomon and Ahaz and Jehu and Ahab and all those guys, and they're going into full-blown idolatry and leading the nation into an idolatry. How much better is that than the days of the judges? I'm not sure it is. There were kings who were decent enough, but they failed. Those, that set of kings failed to get rid of the high places, those places of idolatrous worship. They didn't get rid of them. They kept them there, and people committed idolatry under the reigns of those kings. <clears throat> Then there were kings who wiped out idolatry, but inevitably there's something else going on in their life that is a problem, right? And so you have all these different kings with their different problems. And, and so is the writer of Judges saying here, in those days there was no king in Israel, everybody did what was right in, his eye, in their own eyes, is he saying this whole judge idea was, uh, it, it would have been different had there been kings to rule, it would have been much better? I don't think so, because God's the one that raised up judges. God's the one to raise up judges. So I don't, that was the Lord's plan to raise up judges. He didn't want a king at the time. In fact, I don't believe he ever wanted a king, quite honestly. And Israel, had Israel not rebelled against the Lord in the time of the judges, they would have had order in their society. It would have been like God wanted it to be. No, they rebelled against him. It's their fault. Constant rebellion. And so God says, I'm going to judge you with an enemy nation. So is he saying in chapter 17, verse 6, that the ideal form of government was, was ruled by kings? Is that what he's saying? Well, let's see. Look, look, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8 with me. 1 Samuel 8. Look at verses 1 to 3. Now, by the way, there were still judges at this time. Well, going into the book of 1 Samuel, after Judges and Ruth, and... Uh, it says in verse 1, it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Seems logical, right? Samuel was a godly man. His sons should follow in his footsteps. Verse 2, uh, verse 3 rather, his sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. <laughs> That's still continuing on like the days of the judges, right? Samuel was a godly man, but his sons didn't follow in his step. They're, they are taking bribes and perverting justice and so on and so forth. And so, people are tired of this. In verse 4, they come to Samuel, and look what they say. <clears throat> All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, <clears throat> Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. True enough. What's the alternative? What's the answer? Now appoint a king for us, for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing, and take this chapter to heart. I don't know why we pass over this like it doesn't exist. The thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord. Um, by the way, Samuel was a, God, a man of God. 
And when he was displeased, I think that's a bad sign, okay? He's displeased. Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they, they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That is God's attitude towards kings, isn't it? That's what it says. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, that's the book of Judges, so they are doing to you also. However, listen to their voice, but warn them how the king's going to be. And he, and he warns them. Now turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10. <clears throat> Verse 17, 1 Samuel 10, 17, it says there, <clears throat> Therefore Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the power of the, all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today done what? It says you've rejected your God who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses, yet you have said no, but set a king over us. I mean, any way you slice this, at the outset of this whole king business, God is being rejected in, in favor of a man, a king, to rule. And God says, I don't like that. I wanted to be the king over you, over Israel, but no, you want a man to be a king over you. However... So what do we say about the kings? In God's sovereign will, he made provision for kings to rule and allowed kings to rule, and he made provision for judges to judge. However, when you read the record of these kings and judges, especially the kings, well, especially both, you're going to see that not many of them wholeheartedly follow the Lord. They just did not do it. They didn't do it. What do we learn from all this? We learn that people, whether kings or common citizens, are bent on doing their own will. They're bent on doing that which is right in their own eyes. That's what we learn from this. But I still think, when it says in chapter 17, verse 6, and so on, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his eyes. I still think that under a king, at least, there was centralized authority, so therefore a, central, a certain degree of stability in society. The society was not totally lawless because they had laws and the king enforced them as a rule. And Judges, however, it was more like living in the wild, wild west. Every man was kind of a law to himself. Although, I don't believe it had to be that way, but people chose for it to be that way. Now, there's one more take I want to tell you on this, just to throw it in there, just for the fun of it. <clears throat> and then you guys can think about this. It's pretty interesting. It comes from a guy named Daniel Block, who teaches at Southern Seminary. Listen to his interpretation of this verse, chapter 17, verse 6. He says, Israel does not need a king to lead them. This is what he believes this verse means. Israel does not need a king to lead them in doing what is right in their own eyes. They will do exactly as they please without being led astray by a king. That's his interpretation of that. In other words, the Israelites do not need a king to lead them in the sin. They, will, they can take care of that on their own. Thank you. Please, they don't need any help. That's what he says. And he may be on to something there, something to consider. At any rate... The people did what was right in their own eyes. And, and you know what that means? That means they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It says that phrase over and over, over again. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the reverse side, they did what was right in their own eyes. Same thing. It's repeated, a phrase repeated often in Judges. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So if you're living your life according to your standard, you can be assured that it is not according to God's standard. That's what he's saying here. 
<clears throat> the idea of people doing what was right in their eyes also is not new to Judges. It started in Genesis uh, with the fall of man when they sinned because they did what was right in their own eyes. But what's interesting is a verse in Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 12, 8. The Lord's talking about the time when they would come into Canaan, the land of Canaan. He says, when you come into the land of Canaan, he says, you're destroy, to destroy all the idols here. And in verse 8, he says, Deuteronomy 12, 8, he says, you shall not at all do what you are doing here today in Deuteronomy. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Back then they were doing the same thing. How ironic, right? He says in Judges, don't do what's right in your own, in Deuteronomy, don't do what's right in your own eyes when you get to the land. In Judges, they're doing exactly that, what's right in their own eyes. Even though they're warned about this earlier than prior to coming into the land of Canaan. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? Everybody has always done what's right in their own eyes, and it continues to do that throughout the scriptures. And Proverbs 21.2 explains the problem in greater detail. It says, every, may, every way of a man is right in his own, in his own eyes. Every, everybody thinks what they're doing is the right way, based on their own opinion, their own standard, which is themselves. So if you think your way is right, then what, then what you will be doing uh, is, is what you think is going to be right, even though it conflicts with the way of God. So what do we say about this? Well, we say Israel was a truly blessed nation from the beginning. They had everything, all the advantages. They, to them were committed the oracles of God, the word of God. They were chosen of God to be his special treasure. They had the Lord as their faithful covenant, keeping God faithful to them always. But instead of being thankful to him, they became a nation of ingrates, turning their back on the Lord. And that's what they did. However, they wanted to hold on to some semblance of God from the good old days because they heard about this. Well, we need to hold on to God somehow, but yet at the same time they craved this false worship of Canaanite gods. Same time, syncretism. And that did not only bring judgment to the nation and disgrace to the nation, but it affected the families as well and the individuals in Israel. And I, as I said, I think that Mike and his family were more typical of the time period of Judges than, than the exception to the rule. So the, spiritual, the period of the Judges was a time of spiritual decay for the family. So, we, so when we come to our time period, we, we too need to be careful of any philosophy, any theology, any religious system, anything that promotes the worship, anything other than the worship of the true God. We ourselves have to be careful because I'm telling you, it can be so subtle. Satan is so subtle and people come up to you and you say, hey, did you read the latest book by so-and-so? And then you look into the book and everybody's reading this book and it's espousing heresy and going away from God and People are just caught up in it. We've got to be careful that there's, we don't get caught up in, new, in a new doctrine that leads us astray. It looks appealing to us for some reason, but it leads us astray because Satan is subtle. Israel got into apostasy because they started to hang out with the Canaanites. They intermarried with the Canaanites. They soon adopted the religious practices of the Canaanites and worshiped their gods. We need to beware of who we allow to influence us, regardless of who it is. The devil offered Jesus all the glories of the world if he would just do one thing, fall down and worship me, worship Satan. But Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Exclusive worship of God, exclusive worship of Christ, that's what we want. As Mike says always, he is good, right? He always says that to us. There is no one else worthy of our worship. 
Well, let's worship the Lord tonight as we close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for the time together tonight. We pray that we truly would be devoted to the exclusive worship of Christ tonight, Lord, that we would put him on the pedestal, exalt him only, that we wouldn't look elsewhere, that we wouldn't add anything to that, that we wouldn't look for satisfaction with Christ plus something else or your word plus something else, but that it would only be you, our focus would only be you and always you, that we would uplift you higher and higher every day. And we just pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.